the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the cardinal virtues and the joy of metal brassiers, plus telegraphing the future and altering the past with the fist of science. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. All right, now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have a discussion with Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt all about their new Ring of Fire novel, 1636, The Cardinal Virtues. This is a really interesting addition to the 1632 Ring of Fire universe. We're in France, and that means the infamous Cardinal Richelieu. We'll talk about that and more in just a bit. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. But first, here's the news. Ahoy! It is July, and the hardcovers have been released from their corrals to run rampage over the earth and sky. First is 1636, The Cardinal Virtues, by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but we are in France during the reign of Louis XIII. The Grantville Americans are spreading out and seeking their fortunes, and, and there's all kind of havoc and amazement they're bringing along with them. Also out this month is Chicks and Balances, edited by Esther Friesner and John Helfers, the latest addition to the tongue-in-cheek Chicks and Chainmail series, featuring tough girls kicking butt in fantasy settings. This one has stories by Eric Flint, Harry Turtledove, Jody Lynn Nye, Wynn Spencer, and many more, including the inimitable Esther Friesner herself. 1636 The Cardinal Virtues and Chicks and Balances are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Hi. Eric Flint is the creator of the alternate history Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, published in 2000 and continuing through many best-selling books stories, collaborations, etc. Eric's writing career began with science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons, which we discussed earlier this year on a podcast. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and with a great many other writers, he's collaborated, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and Reiki Spohr, and Walter H. Hunt. Uh, Walter H. Hunt is the author of the Darkwing Space Adventure series, which include novels The Darkwing, The Dark Path, The Dark Ascent, and The Dark Crusade. He has nearly 20 years' experience in high-tech as a software engineer and technical writer. His writing reflects an abiding interest in history, his area of college study. But science fiction has been his favorite reading material since he watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when he was but a lad. Walter is the co-author with Eric Flint of New Ring of Fire series entry 1636, The Cardinal Virtues. So, the cardinal here is is Richelieu. How does the historic Richelieu compare with the Richelieu we meet in Cardinal Virtues? Uh, well, we start from the historical Richelieu because that's who we have. 
Um, he certainly changes as a result of the events of the Ring of Fire. Uh, the main thing about Richelieu is that he's he's so easily portrayed as a villain, you know, the mustache twirling villain of mm-hmm. of uh, Three Musketeers. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to do was actually dive in and find out who he actually was. Uh, so I did a lot of reading on that. And uh, I've already gotten a criticism on an Amazon review saying, "How can you make Richelieu hum- human and uh, 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 compelling? He, he's such a terrible person." Well, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to Richelieu. He's a complicated guy and a very bright. So what we tried to do is humanize him a little bit. Yeah, uh, we, there's some wonderful sections where we're inside of uh, his point of view, and you can certainly see where he's coming from, at least. I've often said that uh, the reason that, in going all the way back to the first novel, that I made reason with you in some ways the central villain there is being perfectly honest about it because I needed an intelligent villain. Um, I could have just as easily, I could write an alternate history in which I made Richelieu the hero of the story. It wouldn't actually be that hard to do. Um, you have to put him partly in the context of time, but also you have to consider him in terms of who his opponents were. Um, because they were pretty uniformly worse than he was. Um, and, you know, but... We had, I had dramatic needs for the novel itself, and that's why I, I portrayed Richard the way I did. But, um, you know, we're, one of the things we've been doing in the um, in the series as a whole, and in this novel in particular, is trying to show the, you know, the complexity of a lot of these people. Uh, there weren't that many. I mean, there were some of them that, you know, it's pretty easy to just characterize as simple, plain villains, but um, most of them, not so much. Yeah, even Gaston, who's usually, usually a villain, is he, he's got a human side to him, and we're trying to bring that out. Yeah, well, we'll let's talk about him in a bit. Um, we should probably say, for those who don't know, the Ring of Fire series is a kind of alternate history, but really it's science fiction. It's about a West Virginia town that gets transported to 1632 in the middle of Europe. And we're now four years into their overall saga. Uh, in 1632, the Cardinal Virtues, we are mostly in France, and there's trouble brewing. Can you give us a setup now of the political situation that's developed since Grantville appeared? Grantville, the town, has uh, has taken on a leading role in Germany, and in some ways brought the Thirty Years' War to a halt due to its alliance with Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden, who's now the Emperor of the United States of Europe. Um, France has been a villain, uh, has been an opponent for a good part of the, the time, but since, what is it, 1634, Eric? Yeah, peace was settled. Um, uh, the war itself, the conclusion of the war, is depicted in the novel 1634, The Baltic War, which I, I wrote with David Weber. The actual conclusion of hostilities is not depicted directly in that novel, at least not with France. Um that sort of takes place in several other stories later, but um, basically by the fall of... I actually didn't write the story that depicts the, the peace settlement between the United States of Europe and France until a short story, oh, the name of which escapes me. It just appeared in April in Granville Gazette 7, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, uh, but I depict the... Um, um, the the Melissa Manley and Doctor Nichols go to Paris, and uh, the, Doctor Nichols has a uh, 
medical thing he has to deal with. But while he's there, she negotiates a treaty with with. Is that, is that cardinal relief? Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. Cardinal relief. Um, cardinal relief. And um, so that's depicted there. Um, and I have by now forgotten what the question was that started us off. So remind me. Uh, well, what about the uh, what about the king and his brother in France right now? There's, I mean, this is where a lot of the tension in the book comes from. The king of France, Louis the Thirteenth, uh, has not got an heir because of whatever reason his uh, his wife Anne of Austria has miscarried a few times, and they've basically given up. And Richelieu has determined that in order for for things not to go completely to, to pieces, uh, France needs an heir, and so he's concocted a scheme by which France gets an heir. Um, the king's younger brother, Gaston, Monsieur, as he's called, has, uh, uh, he's married to his second wife, and he's happily married, actually. That's one of the interesting things about Gaston, is he really didn't, didn't cheat on his wife, either one. Uh, he has a nine-year-old daughter by his first wife, and, uh, he really would like to be king of France. And as long as there's no heir, he is the heir to the king of, kingdom of France. So... What he'd least like to see happen is for the king to acquire a son. And Richelieu knows this, and he has arranged for Gaston's exile. Uh, so Gaston is plotting from the outside, trying to figure out how he can uh, find his way back to the throne. Did Gaston really do something to bring on that exile, or was it just entirely... Oh, yes. <laughs> Gaston has a long... In, in our timeline, and even before 1632... Uh, Gaston was an inveterate schemer, and everybody else went to the gallows, and he wound up being exiled. Uh, so he, he he was engaged in all kinds of plots. He was he was amazingly uh, active in that regard. So he's he's being cast to type. Yeah, we're not flattering <laughs> at all. Uh, he he really was uh, just an inveterate schemer, and the only thing that. That what kept him alive was was actually partly that he was the uh, heir, um, because as long as as uh, King Louis did not have any children, he didn't, and he didn't, under French law he would have needed a male child. Um, but the there is a school of thought. We did not. Walter and I did not invent this out of whole cloth. There is, in fact, a long-standing school of thought in French historiography that has always been skeptical of the claim that uh, the theory is that the actual father of King of Louis the Fourteenth was actually Mazarin, the advisor to Richelieu's uh, uh, sort of understudy and later became the advisor to Louis the Fourteenth. There are complicated reasons why people think that might be the case. Uh, which it would take too long to go into here, but it's not something that Walter and I just invented out of whole cloth. It, it, there is a, uh, a respectable school of thought that argues that. Now, whether it's right or not, who knows? Um, there's, there's but, in fact, some evidence to suggest that Mazarin was Anne of Austria's lover after Louis XIII died, which is, of course, out of the scope of our story. Uh, but but it, we didn't invent it. It's, it's not hard to, uh, to fabricate it. Of course, we go right at it with the story. Mm-hmm. We chose that option because it simply, it, well, it makes it a better story. Sure enough. Yeah, sure. Um, and and this is our setup. The the king does not have a male heir, and there's, there's questions whether he can he can get it 
on to do that, right? <laughs> so Richelieu's arranged for there to be a possibility that somebody gets a mail error. There's a thought on that, too. Yeah. So there's a long-standing school of thought on now, which is that Louis XIII was, was, was gay. Um, and it's one of those things nobody's ever been able to prove one way or the other. Um, but that is one of the theories that floats around. Um, if that's the case, if that's the case, then it makes for an interesting portrayal of him because what it means is that he had to, if it is in fact true that Mazarin was the actual father of what was purported to be Louis's son, who became Louis XIV, then what it, the, the king had to have been part of that plot. There's no way it could happen without him. And what that actually, in my opinion, reflects rather well on uh, Louis because if he died with no heir, that meant for a certainty that Richelieu was a dead man because Monsieur Gaston would have inherited and he absolutely hated Richelieu. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, he, for, <laughs> you could argue for good reason uh, in the sense that Richelieu constantly foiled his plots and... Uh, but in any event, if 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 Gaston takes the throne, then Richelieu is a dead man, and there's not much doubt that that um, that Louis the Thirteenth was quite uh, was quite loyal, and he was uh, in all likelihood rather devoted to Richelieu himself. So it's quite plausible he would have participated in such a plot in order uh, to keep. Recently, protected is what it amounts to. Again, it's one of those things you can't prove um, one way or the other. But on the other hand, nobody can disprove it either. Yeah. Well, let's take take a step back from uh, from the bookstore for a second. How did y'all come to write this together? All right, Walter. First of all, needed some work, and I knew he knew the history and could handle it. And I was tied up with other projects, so you know, we talked to Owen and agreed he'd write the first draft of it, um, and that's uh, how a lot of these collaborations wind up happening. Um, that's my re memory of it, Walter. If you remember, that's, that's about right. We we met uh, directly at a convention in 2010, and, and that's when we decided. Well, you decided that you wanted to have me on board, and I was very happy to do it. Uh, it's a great series, and I'm, I'm a reader of it as well as a as well as a writer in it. And uh, Eric was. It, Good enough to offer me the opportunity to jump in, and gave, he said, "We're gonna let's do this." And, all right, and that's that's it. I mean, my uh, my college had, background is history, so yeah. I had, I actually had uh, first met Walter at a windy con some years ago. Uh, in in those days, he was uh, uh, still getting published through Tor and um, his military and all the uh, the series we talked about earlier. Hmm. Uh, and actually, I was originally talked to him about possibly him writing something for uh, Jim Bain's Universe, which might have come to pass, except Jim Bain's Universe didn't last long enough. Right. But that's, uh, and then I didn't have any contact with Walter for a while, and uh, I got re-hooked up with him through Chuck Gannon, actually. Right. And well, we were rooming together down in, at a convention in North Carolina. And I sat next to him during while uh, doing autographing, and I said, "I'm interested in getting involved." And he said, "Let's go get lunch." <laughs> uh -huh. That's how these things happen sometimes. No idea. Well, I would mention that your uh, your is it Darkwing series? Yes, is available at BainEbooks.com for ebooks. 
Um, it's so, um, so it, the book, uh, one of the cool things about the book is all this sort of, um, jury rigged radio technology, radio communication plays a big role in the book. How have the denizens of Grantville managed to recreate radios? You can't exactly manufacture, you know, silicon transistors with the resources of one small town or maybe even vacuum tubes. Well, the, uh, one thing that, that, that this series has taught us, and people keep demonstrating to us over and over again, that we, we saw something right down in, in North Carolina last, I'm um, sorry, in Tennessee uh, last weekend, is that the very last thing you need to tell to a 1632 writer or reader is, uh, we don't have the technology to do X. <laughs> we'll always find ways to do amazing things uh, with existing technology. And we also have a, a, a great tradition of finding what you might call cul-de-sac technologies, things that were created but were abandoned when better things came along. So there's all kinds of ways to do things that don't require you to have vacuum tubes and all this other stuff. Uh, we, we, we make do with much less sophisticated stuff than, than actually we have today because there's still stuff that works which requires less effort and less, uh, less uh, developed technology. Well, there's this super cool um, uh, spark gap that you describe in the book, and it makes the whole thing glow. Can you sort of explain how that, because it, it's a way that it seems sort of magic to the uh, downtimers. Well, that's why it's in a fancy box. <laughs> in fact, Terry Joe doesn't want them to know what, what's actually in there because they might realize how simple it is. Um, it, it, I... Uh, I got some help from from some of the tech people to help develop the uh, what the technology would actually look like. Um, I'm convinced in Jordy LaForge fashion that if you push the button, it goes. <laughs> so I'm not sure I know too much about it, except that it works. Yeah. Well, that was cool. Um, her her description of it there, from her point of view. Um, so the the other thing about it uh, is you're communicating by by uh, Morse code over these radios for the most part. Um, and I've always liked that. I've seen it in a lot of books, the idea that a telegraph operator has a fist. Can you explain this? Um, sure. It, this is a, this is a well-known, uh, well-known piece of knowledge that, in fact, telegraph oper- operators have a sort of their own consistent pattern in which they, uh, when they, when they send messages and they can recognize each other. Um, another thing we didn't have to make up because it's actually true. Um, there's a, a, a great book called The Victorian Internet, which talks about the telegraph and its development. And uh, in it, that idea is expounded, and it's a very, uh, it's a very clever one that, that 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 was a way for people to recognize uh, fellow fellow operators, at, just as if they were, uh, you know, signing their names. So that we didn't have to make that up either. Yeah. Well, talking about some of the characters. Um... We, well, we talked about Louis the Thirteenth and uh, his brother Gaston. Um, what uh, What about Queen Anne? She has um, taken an up timer midwife. Um, and what really happened with Anne's progeny? And what happens in the book? Um, well, tell what really happened with Anne's progeny. We may not want to give away too much on. That. Um, she had two sons. Yeah, uh, and uh, they both. Uh, they both lived a while. One of them, of course, was or was supposed to be uh, uh, Louis XIV. Uh, the other was a younger brother, Philippe d'Orléans. So he, she, her, she was very protective of her uh, of her two children. 
She was Spanish, right, originally, from the Spanish Habsburg. Yes, Anne of Austria is a, is a misnomer because her mother was, was Austrian. Uh, but she was actually the daughter of uh, Philip III, who was the father of Philip IV. So she's she and the King of Spain are brother and sister. Uh, she is uh, she had she had two sons, and they they both uh, survived her. She died in 1666 in the real timeline, and uh, they lived on. Of course, Louis XIV lived on a very long time. So, uh, but of course, this in this milieu, she's only ever going to have one child, at least by. Louis the Fourteenth, Louis Thirteenth, supposedly. Uh, so that's that's about it for her. We're well, changing that, of course. Yeah, her um, the relationship with Spain. Spain at this time is uh, declining empire, but it's still immensely powerful, and it's a threat, right? If it wants to be. Um, well, it, it wants to be. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to imagine it wouldn't want to be. Um, what is it? What are its attention? What's the intention of um, uh, Oliverius? Was the guy that was the uh, go-between? Who's the king? Philip the. The, yeah, uh, the Count Duke of Olivares was basically his. Uh, the Spanish are called a Rishi, although he wasn't not quite because um, uh, King Louis the Thirteenth in France pretty much let Rishi run the country. Um, Olivares was the chief minister of Spain, but King and Philip IV was, seems to have been somewhat more involved in government than, than Louis XIII was. But right. basically, so, you can think of him as the chief minister of Spain, and, and you won't go far wrong. They're just waiting for a chance to, to take France if they can. Is that the... Well, what, they, happened in re, what happened in real history was that a war broke out between France and Spain that started in 1635, and it went for 24 years. It went till 1659. It was this, this quarter of a century of, it was a war that, that drained both countries. At the end of it, four towns that you've never heard of changed hands from Italy to uh, from Spain to uh, France. So technically the French won the war, but it was one of these the wars that people tend to know about are the ones that had some consequences, but there are a huge number of wars in history that everybody forgets about. Sure. Uh, the Mantuan War was another one that took place in northern Italy in the early sixteen thirties that killed Yeah, just uh, just one before of, our time. Yeah, just before the the the, uh, the series begins, and it it you know is estimated to have depopulated twenty five percent of the population in northern Italy, and it resulted in absolutely nothing. There were just a lot of wars like that, um, and that was one of them. So um, th that there is hostility between France and Spain has has been a given for a long time. The the main dynastic conflict in Europe in this period is between the Habsburg dynasty and the Bourbon dynasty, which runs France. Now, in real history, what we've done in this series is the Habsburg dynasty has splintered into three separate and somewhat... In real history, there were two branches of the Habsburg, the Spanish and the Austrian, who were fairly closely allied. Um... What's happened in the 1632 series is that a third branch has emerged in the Netherlands, and it is 
increasingly what's happening is that the 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 Netherlands and the Austrian branch of the Habsburgs are getting closer, and both of them are getting estranged from the Spanish Habsburg. Um, so that who don't embrace of, technology at all. Yeah, well, they're starting yeah. to, but they're slower than anyone else, which is pretty well true to uh, Spanish traditions. Um, and and when you say Spain's a declining empire, you got to be careful about that. That that is something historians believe they can see now in retrospect. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the time. Um, they didn't the know they were. As, as the Ottoman Empire. In retrospect, historians will argue that the Ottomans are already starting to decline in this period, but at the time, it sure didn't look like that to anybody. Uh, same is true of the Spanish. Um, the Spanish tercios been beating the crap out of everybody for a very long time. Um, and they probably still had the most powerful continent, army in the continent. At least people thought it was, at any rate. One of the things that happens in the series, and it happens again in a battle that takes place in, in this novel, 16, you know, The Cardinal Virtues, is that uh, Spanish military tactics and technology are just getting obsolete very quickly. Right. I'm sure we can say a lot more about, about that, but let, let's talk about some of the great uptimer characters, um, two of whom end up more or less on different sides in the, uh, in the coming conflict. There is uh, Terry Joe Tillman, who has a military background, and a bit of a rough relationship with her father. So how has she how has she been adapting to being a woman in the 17th century? Well, she's been in the army, which is which is true for a lot of a lot of people right at the beginning of the uh, right after the Ring of Fire. Um, and as far as her relationship with her father, she as as I depicted, she she decides she isn't ready to go home afterward because after after her service because he's very hung up on the idea that the that the 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 future is gone. He's lost his wife and his sister-in-law uh, to Huntington's disease, and he sort of blames the Ring of Fire for that. He's he's a uh, um, the problem is, of course, they weren't they weren't getting well. They were just maintaining their existence, and and he doesn't he doesn't know how to deal with the fact that uh, that that they're dead, that they're gone, and he he hasn't adapted to uptime uh, to to downtime from uptime, and probably never will. But uh, uh, but she's an interesting character. She's she's never not been used in the series before, and so I was given pretty much free reign with her. And I wanted her to be to to give the sort of the the uptime review of relatively young uptime review of of uh, the great wide world. So she has skills. That, I think it's it's a she has a lot more opportunity than she might have had in in downtime. Well, she's uh, as we began the book, she's in Turin. Um, what's her situation there? She's hired to be a telegrapher, and there, uh, the the uh, uh, the Duke of Savoy has hired her to uh, to run his telegraph, to, because he he's likes the idea that he has a telegraph machine. And of course, the Duke of Savoy is involved with uh, is involved with Gaston to some extent, and she doesn't know that. She she's she just assumes some rich guy wants to build a telegraph and hire somebody to run it, so she's happy to do that. Yeah, one. Thing that's true, and we've been depicting more and more in the 1632 series, is that as time goes on and the initial sort of emergency situation that the 
transplanted Americans initially found themselves in is uh, is easing up a great deal. Um, um, there's no real prospect that uh, anyone's going to try to do another raid on, on uh, Grantville like happened at the end of uh, uh, 1632. It's just not going to happen. Um, and one of the things that leads to is the fact that um, almost any uptimers are called American with any get up and go at all it can make a lot of money um, yep. because they have skills that are um, that are really very valuable yeah even old Bernie in the Kremlin games <laughs> one of my favorite characters yeah yeah right. so um, what you're find, what you're seeing happening increasingly is is what sometimes referred to as the American diaspora where uh, Americans are just leaving um, um, they're just literally leaving uh, Grantville, and it, it, I think we estimated that by the end of 1630, the year 1636, at least half the population of uh, original population of Grantville that came through time will have left, will have migrated, will have gone somewhere else, because, um, you know, the opportunities elsewhere are just so great that it's it, it would be, you know, to be foolish to stay there, so people don't. Um, and what you're seeing with Terry Jo Tillman is one of those people. I mean, you know, she in her case, it's, it, it, it's more complicated because she has this kind of strained relationship with her father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the dynamic is one that has been demonstrated in a lot of the novels by now. Uh, where you just see a lot of, of the uh, Americans just migrating and and leaving Grantville and going elsewhere because there's no reason not to anymore. Um, right. It was a city of wonders in 1631, 1632, and it's just not that because those wonders have been transplanted to other places. Yeah. The, the technology well, is now... Go ahead. Well, no. Well, <laughs> the other factor is that... Um, Real estate values in Grantville are now probably the highest in Europe. So any American who wants to move, I mean, for one thing, it's the greatest tourist attraction in Europe for reasons that sure. would be obvious. And so one of the things that happens is that any American can sell a house and, and start off with, you know, what amounts to a small fortune. And if they then have skills that they can... Uh, which most Americans will have some kind of skills, especially if they know something like plumbing. But, um, you know, the, the kind of skills that they have are, are, are going to be in great demand all over Europe. And especially with the, the relative end of hostilities at the end of 1634, there's a lot more room to move around. It was harder, obviously, initially, because everybody's at war. But, but war is pretty much died down. It's going to be erupting again, but for the moment it's sort of died down. And so you get people like Terry Jo Tillman, uh, uh, Sherilyn Maddox, uh, that you find a lot of these characters in a number of the different novels who are just, you know, have left and gone somewhere to, uh, you know, found Bernie Zeppi went off to Russia, and you know, all kinds of people like this. Well, let's, let's talk about Sherilyn Maddox a bit. She has been part of this infamous mercenary band, um, Harry Leffert's Wrecking Crew, and now she's developing um, 
the special forces of, of uh, General Turin's, I believe, uh, French army. She's kind of like a von Steuben kind of kind of character, right? Um, and well, she 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 didn't think she could do it, but of course, you know, she's um, she's uh, become a uh, become a sort of trainer for the for the this ranger group. Uh, yeah, so this is a. Uh, I got given ter- uh, uh, Sherwin. Because she breaks the the wrecking crew disappears at the end of sixteen uh, thirty five the papal stakes, so she's loose and had to find something to do and I I put her in I put her in Marseille and she gets a job because mm. she's approached um, she's fun she's a fun character to write I have to say uh, well she was she was Terry Joe Tillman's uh, gym teacher right back in the day <laughs> much hated yeah. gym teacher that's right. That was it. so Terry Joe doesn't uh, her initial reaction when she finally runs into her is she doesn't know exactly how it's going to go. But one thing is true of, of uh, Sherilyn is she's she's very fiercely uh, loyal to Grantville people. Uh, she this is a fellow a fellow uh, uptimer who needs help and she she offers it without without restriction. The, the past is gone. It's not about it's not about their former relationship. That they're grown ups now. So. And the fact that she can lead a ranger group um, it, 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 as a woman, prob- it goes down to the fact that she's an uptimer, right? That she's, I mean. Oh, yeah. And what kind of rifles are they carrying? Uh, they have the they have the cardinal rifle. Eric, do you want to describe that? Or, or? Uh, oh, God. Uh, the cardinal <laughs> rifle is the one that, that the French steal a march. On the Americans in 1634, the Baltic. What happened was that uh, years and years ago, in discussing, uh, there's a whole group of people who work on the uh, technical, technological aspect of the of the series. Uh, there's no way I could have figured all this out on my own. It wouldn't be possible. And one of the things that everybody agreed on years ago was that, uh, for at least the time being, trying to develop percussion caps based on fulminate mercury, which is going to be two. It could be done, but only in small quantities because of the risk involved. Um, they said there was no practical prospect of mass-producing percussion caps. At some point, a new person uh, joined the discussion on in Bain's Bar, who was a chemist, and, and this person pointed out there was an alternative way of doing percussion caps that that was feasible, given the technology at the time, and would not have been particularly dangerous. I first became aware of this when, when uh, Rick Boatwright, the uh, sort of head tech geek, called me on the phone and, and very apologetically said, Eric, we screwed up. Um, we thought it wasn't possible to do percussion caps, but it was pointed out to us, and that it could be done, and 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 he started apologizing. I said, "Oh no, this is great," <laughs> because if our test people overlooked it, then it's perfectly plausible that the Americans in Grantville would have overlooked it also. Which means we could have the French develop it, who were at the time at war with the United States. And the reason I like this is because in the real world, you know, the other guy figures stuff out too. Um, that's how it really works. And there's a tendency in fiction, 
for everything to be neater than it really is in the real world. There's particularly a tendency, if you're not careful, to have the heroes figure everything out. Uh, whereas in the real world, the uh, you know the opponent <laughs> is often the one who steals the march on you. And so in this case, we were able to have the French be the ones who first develop percussion caps and and develop rifles able to use percussion caps in a mass way. The actual rifle they designed, the Cardinal, is essentially a ripoff of an American Sharps rifle. Uh, they get a hold of an old copy of their Sharps, and they basically just, uh, you know, reverse engineer it is essentially what it amounts to. So that's essentially what the Sharps is. I mean, what the Cardinal rifle is. It's it's basically an old Sharps. You can think of it that way, and you won't go wrong. And we should probably say, I mean, the thing about a percussion cap rifle is that you don't have to load the flash pan with powder and you got a higher rate of fire among other things right yeah it like triples the value of your troops oh it it, it makes a huge difference um right and if they're a good shot really does sir <laughs> huh if they're a good shot it's even better yeah yeah <laughs> well i mean i imagine uh, well of course in real life it changed tactics entirely from uh Math. Anyway, uh, so one of my favorite characters in the book is uh, the faithful retainer of Richelieu, um, Servian, who we spent a lot of time in his head, and he has all sorts of messages to deliver and decisions to make. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Well, he's a he's an intendant. He's a he's a uh, what is sometimes called called a créature, which is a, a terrible term because it it sounds very demeaning. But he's a um, he's a, a loyal servant of Richelieu. And in fact, he's so loyal he doesn't want to leave his master's side when he's mortally wounded. Uh, he's, uh, uh, I believe, this his 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 cousin Abel is a is a historical character, and I think I think uh, Etienne Servien is a, is a is a historical character as well. Although we built him into something that he wasn't. Uh, uh, I really like him too. He's uh, because he's sort of going to have to make decisions that. Uh, without knowing what the future is going to be like. I don't think he ever thought about where, where things would go if anything ever happened to his master. Uh, but he's an interesting character, and I really like writing him. Um, I think we're going to do more with him. Yeah, he's very sympathetic. It was fun to uh, to follow him. So the story ends in a way that left me expecting there might be a sequel to this particular thread in the uh, Ring of Fire universe. Is there one? Is it underway? Yes, there is one, and it is not quite underway yet because uh, uh, Walter and I have another project we're working on, um, which is um, it, it's a new series that uh, we're doing with Kevin Anderson uh, that's a, a combination of fantasy and alternate history set in North America during colonial time. And uh, that's the workbook we're working on right now. He and I, uh, as soon as once that's done, then yes, we will be going back to. Uh, um, we'll be going sixteen thirty-six. The wheels fall off the bus. Uh, <laughs> well, what what happens at the end of this novel is you get the beginning of the French Civil War, but it, it's 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 obviously just the beginning of it. It's it's going to be continuing to unfold for quite a while yet. Um, it'll be at least one more book. We're not quite sure. We have to see how the writing goes. Um, and we'll be starting working on that fairly soon, but it's not right now. We're not doing it right away. Right. 
Well, something I happen to know that you, cause you've said it several times, Eric, that something big is building for the next solo Flint, uh, ring of fire novel. Can you reveal anything about this to us? Uh, <laughs> what are we looking forward to there? Solo novel? Yeah. Well, the, the title, yeah, I mean, the title of it is 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught, so it's not exactly, um, anybody who's been following the series and isn't, um, trying to figure a polite way of saying this, um, dense, sort of hopelessly dense, um, will have figured out by now that, um, the Ottoman Empire is about to invade Austria. Um, and that will be happening. I, I need to back up. The way that a invasion of Austria from uh, the Ottoman Empire would have happened in, in real life. Uh, you do not move a gigantic army across the Balkans quickly. It can't be done. And the way that, in particular, to move a huge army, we're talking at least 100,000 men, through the Balkans, you can't do it until the grass has come up enough, So because you need a huge amount of livestock. Um, and you have to have grass for them to feed on. So you can't start the march until April or May. You can mobilize your troops up near Belgrade, but then the march will start up up the up the Balkans, uh, following a Danube initially, and there will be months of warning that it's happening. It's not going to come as a surprise to anyone. <coughs> it's impossible. I mean, there's no way the Turks could do a sneak attack on Austria. It just can't be done, and it will take at least two months to get the army up there. Um. So everything that happens, and that means they're going to start the march in the spring of 1636. In other words, by the end of Saxon Uprising, 1636 Saxon Uprising, the Ottoman attack on Austria has actually already begun, although it hasn't yet come to the attention of anybody. It's just starting. Um, so the approaching Turkish army that is approaching Vienna will be in the backdrop of the initial sequence of events that happens in my next solo novel. And the next solo novel will be a direct sequel both to 1636, the Saxon Uprising, as well as 1636, the Viennese Waltz. Because we're going to get the gates of Vienna. Novel Four Days on the Danube, which is in Ring of Fire 3. So I've got a lot of things I've got to bring into this. Um, and that's what will be happening in that book, and it will take place in the summer and early fall of 1636, um, before it ends. So, can so, you, go ahead. Well, no, I, but what's happening in France is, is happening, as is obvious by now, anybody who's been following the series, 1636 is the year in which everything kind of blows wide open why there are so many 1636 titles. So what's happening in France is simultaneous, well, more or less, with what's going to be happening in in my next solo novel, 
And, you know, all this stuff is happening concurrently. For the most part, it's not happening sequentially. <clears throat> but it's far enough apart from each other that they don't necessarily directly impact on each other immediately. Tell us a little bit more about this uh, thing you're doing with Kevin J. Anderson, you guys. I, I'm interested in the in the setup for that, the concept. The concept is um, that there is an event um, which is triggered off by Haley's Comet, which seems apparently to have some sort of mysterious powers, which might be magical, they might be from another universe, nobody really knows. But... Um, what happens is that um, Halley's Comet passes by the Earth in 1682, and it begins a process of some changes in history that are initially very, very subtle. And then when it comes back around again in the next passage, which was in 1759, it really blows everything wide open. And what happens in the passage of 1759 is that it impacts the Earth directly. <coughs> um, except that, well, the nature of the impact is kind of strange. Um, and nobody in, none of the characters will ever really know exactly what happened. But the effect of the impact that takes place in 1759 is that two things happen. The first is that the New World, or at least part of it, is sundered. It's separated from the rest of the world, or from the old world. Um, and it, the, the separation, the nature of it is mysterious, and some of the books will explore it. It's, it takes one character on the West Coast and a different character in the Atlantic, but the net effect of it is that there is no longer any contact between the old world and the new world. So whatever exists in the new world as of the year 1759, it's on its own from now on. There are not going to be any more Europeans coming over, or Africans. Um, and the second thing that happens is that the impact seems to unleash magical forces. Say that again. In the new world. Sorry. Magical forces. Unleash magical, what appear at least to be magical forces in the New World, which are based on the existing cultural matrices that existed there. So there'll be both Native American magic, West African magic, and Western European magic. But the the rapidity and the and the power with which those magic uh, forces emerge seems to be roughly correlated with the extent to which the different cultures are further removed from the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment. In other words, the more traditional they are, the more rapidly the magic powers emerge. But these are really new powers to everyone. I mean, the, 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 they come out of that cultural matrix, but it is not there. There is no existing class of experienced wizards. Uh, the the Indian shamans don't really have any idea what's happening anymore than anyone else does. So uh, that's the background. And then there are three novels being written. It's the, the contract we signed with Bain was a multiple book contract. Walter and I are doing a book which basically is centered mostly on Canada and, and New York, and to some extent New England. And the central characters of which are, are Wolf and Moncom, 
Yeah, well, we're in the middle of the Seven Year War, right? We're right but yeah, the middle of the Seven Years War. Yeah, seventeen fifty nine was supposed to be the Annus Mirabilis, the, the great the great victories for the British, and it's gonna turn out a right. little different. Yeah, Wolf has arrived. He arrives at the beginning of the book, but the problem is he's lost a good part of his expedition. Um and uh the British General Amherst, who was a really nasty piece, and never mind, I don't want to get into the plot, but <laughs> the book that, that Walter and I are writing is focused in North America and around Canada and, and New York, and and for anyone familiar with the history, it sort of culminates in what is sort of like Pontiac's War, except it's on steroids, and it's got demons and magic in it. The book that Kevin is writing with his partner, Peter Wax, will depict the Lewis and Clark expedition, but it's it's an earlier expedition. It's not the Lewis and Clark of historical record. It's their ancestors, or I think the father and older brother. I've forgotten what it is. <coughs> and they will set out much earlier. They will set out shortly after the comet's impact in order to see what they can find in the Pacific side to see if, you know what's over there. And the novel they're writing will depict their adventures. And then the fifth author in the group is Iten Colon, who has written four. He, he and his brother Danny wrote four novels for Tor a while back. Um, and he's writing a novel, the title of which is Benjamin Franklin, Wizard for Hire. Okay, I was wondering if we were going to see Franklin. That sounds really cool. Franklin is going to be a central character. He's a central character in Iten's uh, novel. So... Those are the three novels we'll begin. If it's successful, then what we want to do is do an anthology. It, we're quite consciously hoping to pattern, at least to an extent, off the 1632 series. And if, you know, all these things always depend on sales. But if the books do well enough, then we want to do is, is have an anthology, solicit other people coming and write, you know, and, and so forth. Um, so that's... Um, that's the project. Well, that sounds that sounds really fun. Um, and this book is really fun. The book we are talking about now is 1636, The Cardinal Virtues by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. It's now out in hardcover at booksellers everywhere. Eric and Walter, thank you very much for being with us. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now, here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chapter 4 Young peeled out of the driveway and checked his car's computer. He was designated to respond to the Western Avenue call. It was about six minutes, ETA. He thumbed open his cell as he took the turn, blowing a stop sign and nearly getting T-boned by an expedition, then hit his lights and sirens. He hit speed dial three and waited impatiently. 
What? We've got multiple officers requesting backup, and you's got time for a personal call? Sergeant Joseph Joey Paterno would never have made sergeant in a previous Williamsburg administration. He had plenty of credentials, 14 years on SFPD, in some of the toughest districts. He was physically fit, a short, barrel-chested Jewish Italian from New York, with time not only as a beat and operations sergeant, but leading one of SFPD's premier SWAT teams. He'd moved to Williamsburg, which entailed a big pay cut, when his partner got a much better job offer than he'd had in Frisco. And the department here had, after much head-scratching, taken Joey on. The head-scratching was pretty much covered by the word partner. In fact, it was, legally, in California, husband. In Virginia, it was still a bit ambiguous. Joey had at least gotten over his tendency to freak people, intentionally, by talking with a lisp, and he took the occasional ribbing about his preferences pretty well. When it got to be too extreme, he'd just do a little twist or a moo, and the joker would generally shut right the hell up. And if that didn't work, he had a font of other practical jokes, not to mention a right hook that was legendary. Not personal, Young said. The 1037 was a family using an abandoned dock to load a mass of guns, food, and toilet paper onto a brand new boat. Which has what to do with the 1064s piling on officers? Paterno asked. The husband, who was one cool cucumber, suggested to me just before the 1199 that if I had a 1064 acting in a hostile nature to shoot first and just take the admin leave and avoid the blood spatter. When I got the call, he added to absolutely under any circumstances avoid the bite. I quote, the blood pathogen is particularly nasty. You're shedding me, Paterno said. No way. He mentioned 1064s before the call, Young said. Hostile 1064s. He said there was going to be some sort of announcement at noon. Son of a... I heard about that, Paterno said. The CDC was scheduling a joint press conference with the Fibbies. Okay, meet you at Watterson. Shit. Changing call. Young glanced at his board and shook his head. There were alarm calls going up all over the place, including... I've got a... he said, then braked hard. A naked girl, teenager, had just run in front of his car. Her face was... He keyed his radio as the girl jumped onto his hood, then started smashing at the glass. Her face was distorted, insane. She looked pasty, as if she'd been sick. Just... something wasn't there. Unit 873 to base, hostile 1064, female, 460, Butterworth Drive, attacking my car, request female officer assistance. 873, 10-0. Protocol 5150, no assistance available. Base, 873, say again, female, expand, teenage female, 311. Roger, no assistance available, 873-10-0-5150. Transport to Emerson on secure. What the fuck? Young swore. Use caution, crazy person, duh, no assistance. No female officer for a naked teenage girl? He was going to get the crap suit out of him. He was avoiding using a certain word even in his head. Not that not thinking zombie was keeping him from thinking zombie. 
Problem being, the girl was not the level of threat that permitted the use of a firearm. If he shot her, he'd be lucky to just get administrative leave. He'd be looking at assault or manslaughter at the very least. He caught movement in his peripheral vision and saw a man, probably the girl's father, staggering across the lawn. He had multiple bite marks on his chest and arms, both of which were bare. He'd apparently just thrown on some shorts to follow his naked daughter into the street. The girl was going absolutely insane on his windshield, hammering it so hard her hands were bleeding, and she was biting at the recalcitrant glass. The car had been upgraded with a stronger type of auto glass, or she'd probably have shattered the window. Young didn't hear what happened, but the girl suddenly looked to the passenger side of the cruiser. The word feral came to mind. The look of a wild predator that had heard the sound of prey. She leapt off the hood and charged the man on the lawn. Then Young bailed out. He wasn't sure how he was going to handle the wild child. The department, after a series of lawsuits and protests to the city government, mostly over YouTube videos that hadn't happened anywhere near Williamsburg, had taken tasers away from all officers except sergeants and above, who had had the state course in same. The girl was already on the man before Young could even get around the cruiser. She was not howling, not screaming, keening, he thought, was the word. A high, long, weird sound, and she was thoroughly locked onto the man's left arm, with hands and teeth biting and ripping at it. Help! the man screamed, looking at Young while struggling to free his arm. He was pulling the girl's hair half frantically, half gently, as if afraid to actually hurt her. For the love of God, help me! Jesus Christ! Chelsea! Chelsea! Young just stood there for a moment, hands on his hips, then opened up the back of his cruiser. In a box, there was a bag that was for assistance in securing hostile animals. Generally called a snake bag, it was just part of the kit. Cops didn't secure wild animals, but if they had to back up animal control, they carried snake bags. Like the M4, he was seriously contemplating, for if they had to back up SWAT. He regarded the bag for a moment, judging the size of the opening, about large enough to fit over a teenage girl's head. There were also tactical gloves. The diamonds were a pain to wear all the time, but if there was ever a time to put on a set of gloves, it was now. He wished they were thick leather. As long as he kept her off his arms, he should be good. He took the bag in hand and duck-walked up behind the girl, gaze fixed on the back of her head. Would you hurry? The man snarled, then screamed wildly as blood began to spray all over the freshly cut green lawn. Young paused behind the girl for just a moment, then snapped the bag across and down. The girl's mouth was locked on her father's arm, but as the bag went over her eyes, she reared back, clawing it permitting the man to fall back onto the grass. He pushed himself backwards toward the house, trying to staunch the spurting artery his daughter had torn into. Young, meantime, had his own troubles. The girl had started spinning before he could get the bag fully over her head and had one hand under it. He was afraid to simply yank the closure line too hard. It could permanently choke her. But the bag had at least slid down enough to cover her mouth. She was no longer keening, just gutturally grunting. He also wasn't sure where to put his hands. Freaking cameras were everywhere these days. 
He wasn't in direct view of the car, but people were probably breaking out their cell cameras for the spectacle. Although, come to think of it, distribution or even ownership would probably, assuming the girl was under 18, and she looked more like 15, be a federal crime. In fact, his car camera might just be considered a federal violation. Cops weren't automatically exempt. Of course, he couldn't legally turn it off, absent orders or completion of the call, which was not yet complete. So he was probably covered. Probably. Which is exactly what he expected to be thinking when fighting his first zombie. Not. First, incredibly strong, wiry, excessively underage, fast, naked, female zombie. Then he heard the screams behind him. Looking over his shoulder, he saw a woman running out of a home down the street. She was clothed, but the clothing was ripped. Pursuing her was a naked man, covered in blood, and she was, naturally, running towards the policeman for help, with the subject in hot pursuit. Screw this, Young said, holding the bag barely clothed with one hand and drawing his Glock. He placed it against the girl's quadricep and pulled the trigger. The girl shrieked and fell to the ground, grabbing at her leg. What are you doing? Her father shrieked. Trying to save your life, her life, and mine, Young said, spinning around. Come on, he said, waving at the woman to pass him. Come on. Don't let them bite you. Don't, the woman said, waving her hands. She was dressed in jeans and a nice blouse, as if she had been headed out to the store when her world came apart. The blouse was now rent and bloody, and she had a large bite mark at the juncture of her shoulder and neck. Please don't. I don't know what's wrong with my... I do, Young lied, targeting the oncoming man's chest. He was big enough and violent enough it might be ruled a good shoot. If what appeared to be happening was, well, what was happening probably would be ruled a good shoot. Virginia wasn't quite San Francisco. In Frisco, he'd assuredly be fried. Halt, or I will fire in defense of self and others. It was usually a phrase used by civilians. Cops were supposed to use anything but firearms to resolve the situation. You only drew a gun if there was another gun. Maybe a knife. But the guy was big, and the girl was going to be up and hopping any second now and he had no backup. Young was out of options. Halt! 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 He waited until the charging man was under five meters, then, following training, double-tapped. One upper chest, then, following the natural climb of the recoil, one to the head. The man plowed the ground at Young's feet as his wife started to scream, louder. It was Young's first official shoot, but he'd previously seen what a bullet did to a human skull. Best not to dwell on it. Officer involved shooting, Young said into his radio as he walked to his car. There was a first aid kit in the trunk. Not that he thought it was going to do anyone much good. He'd had a bit of trouble getting his pistol back in the holster, but his voice was clear. Even if he was falling back on older training. One kilo India Alpha, two whiskey India Alpha, he paused as he was reciting the litany of disaster, bent over, and more or less casually threw up. No bites, Young said, spitting. So far. 
That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Koki Daniel for being quiet. And to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Morse code message full of thanks and kudos, cloaked in the velvet fists of a choir of angelic operators, sending out CQs over the ether, if we could just slow down in this frantic world and listen to them in the rustle of leaves and the panting of cute puppies, to Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, co-authors of 1636, The Cardinal Virtues. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. Music